opened up talking about how uh, these verses do belong in our Bible, despite some who try and suggest that they should not be in our Bibles, and we talked about why we believe that. Uh, we talked last Sunday night about how we need these verses, how the church in Rome needed these verses, and how Christians in every generation under all kinds of different forms of government have needed these verses. And we ended up talking about how we need to understand that the Christians in Rome to whom Paul was writing uh, were not Christians who were seeking to um, Christianize the government uh, or to have the government uh, uh, give Christianity a priority. Uh, they were very much at the time of this writing a very small minority in the Roman Empire, an oppressed minority a persecuted minority, though even when Paul writes this, the persecution hadn't gotten to where it would be going. Uh, this was the very early days of the Christian church. And we talked about different views of how church and state, the kingdom of Christ and uh, earthly kingdoms ought to relate to one another. And I mentioned at the end that I affirm what is known as the historic Baptist position, uh, the separatist position, namely that, that church and state ought to be separate. Uh, but we didn't have time to start giving some reasons for that. And so that's what we're going to be doing uh, this evening and spend a lot of time making some application from that as well. Um, before we go further, we should pray. So I'm going to ask Pastor Murrow if he'll pray for us and then we'll jump into the text. So let's read uh, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. But would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. The authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor 
to whom honor is owed. So uh, I want to argue then for the, the historic Baptist position, uh, what I believe is the biblical position uh, when it comes to how church and state should relate. I do not believe that we should try and have political nations under the power of the church, as we talked about with the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, remember back then, kings and queens answered to the Pope. Kings and queens were sometimes even appointed by the Pope, famously Charlemagne. Uh, the Pope controlled military forces, vast land resources. He had millions of devoted followers. If any political leader went against the Pope, they did so at their own peril. Uh, the state was in submission to the church. I don't believe that's the way it ought to be. Nor do I believe the opposite. That civil governments ought to be over the church. Uh, that politicians and monarchs should have the final say on what Christians are to believe or what religions should be worshipped or followed in a nation. This is how it is in England and Scotland and other countries. We saw last time that this is an idea called Erastianism. Um, that civil leaders are given the authority over Christian doctrine and Christian worship. Uh, I think that's the wrong path. I think separatists, early Baptists, had the right idea. I think Isaac Bacchus was right when he said religious matters are to be separated from the jurisdiction of the state, not because they are beneath the interest of the state, but quite to the contrary, because they are too high and holy and thus are beyond the competence of the state. Uh, in other words, put simply, civil governments do best when they allow people of all religions or even no religion to follow their own consciences and to believe and worship as they believe is right. As soon as government begins to favor any particular religion or to favor no religion, uh, we find ourselves in a mess. Issues of faith, issues of the soul are too high for governments to legislate and they will end up doing more harm than good. So let me give you four biblical reasons why I believe in the separation of church and state. And on the board here, I've written it this way. Uh, you have the kingdom of Christ, the church, and you have earthly kingdoms, the state. And of course, we exist as Christians in both kingdoms, right? We exist as citizens of the kingdom of Christ, the church, but we also exist as citizens of an earthly kingdom. The United States. And if you happen to have dual citizenship, you could actually belong to multiple right states and then also the kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. So what should we say about this? Well, first, these two kingdoms are different in their origins. They are different in their origins. OK, where they come from. The state has its origins in common grace. Uh, God has designed people in such a way that all human beings have a natural tendency to organize themselves into societies. In God's providence, governments have been continually and almost universally established wherever groups of people have lived together. Sometimes people came together and a mutual government and a mutual agreement established a government. 
Sometimes through military force and conquest and violence, a government was established. But if you were to travel around the world and try and find a society of people where everyone truly has equal authority, I would suggest you will not find it. Hierarchy, principles of authority and submission are woven into the hearts of men. We were created in God's image and God himself at least as he is in relation to us and in this world, has a relationship in which the Son submits to the Father, the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. And just as we see that uh, organization of the Trinity into uh, members who have authority and submit to one another, so also in human beings created in the image of God, we see that we by nature take on roles of authority and submission. And one example of that, one expression of that, is that wherever you go, there are governments. People organize themselves under civil leadership. These human governments are good in the sense that they are a gift of God's common grace. We actually don't deserve this. We should praise God for the gift of civil government. Verse 4 says, He is God's servant for your good. Governments bring order into our world, and governments restrain the wickedness of men. Sometimes we like to talk about how bad our world is and how messed up our culture is. Take civil government away, it would be a whole lot worse. Civil governments are are a gift, a restraining hand on the wickedness of men. Uh, The church is very different than earthly kingdoms when it comes to their origin. The church exists not because of common grace, But frankly, because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, When Paul was speaking with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The church only exists... Because the Son of God was willing to come and to die that such a kingdom could be created. Uh, I am thankful for my citizenship in this earthly kingdom called America. I'm certainly even more thankful for my citizenship in the heavenly kingdom called the church. One, earthly kingdoms are rooted in God's common grace... But the church, the kingdom of Christ, is rooted in God's special saving grace. And only comes at the cost of the life of the Son of God. Those who never come to know the salvation of Jesus will one day have to give an account before God for how they used and lived under this common grace of civil government. Unbelievers will one day experience the condemnation of God for not loving him and trusting him when he gave them such a gift as this. The culpability of sinful men will be increased because he was gracious and gave them the gift of civil government. 
For unbelievers, the common grace gift of human governments will one day be a part of their condemnation. But when a person has been saved by God's special grace, brought into the kingdom of heaven, all condemnation is gone forever. All of our guilt was taken by Christ on the cross. The church is rooted in God's sovereign electing grace, his plan to give his son a bride. And so we see that these two kingdoms have two different origins. These two kingdoms are also different in their very nature. They are different in their nature. Nations are concerned with the outward, the external, the physical. The church is first and foremost concerned about the inward, the internal, the spiritual. Uh, Nations are concerned with economies and public safety and stewardship of land and other such matters. The church is mainly concerned with matters of the soul, matters of eternity. And therefore, the the priorities of these two kingdoms are very different from each other. They are different in nature. We'll say more about that as we keep going with this one. The two kingdoms are also different in their mission. Different in their mission. Uh, We see in our verses, in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, God institutes human governments for a purpose. Governments really do bring order. Governments really do restrain wickedness. Governments bring physical protection and a form of justice into our lives. But that's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations teaching them all that Christ has commanded, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Order and justice are the purpose of nations. The salvation and discipleship of souls is the purpose of the church. So as you, as you think about what's different between these two kingdoms, uh, one, the kingdom of Christ Well, let me start here. Earthly kingdoms, usually you become a part of an earthly kingdom by being born into that kingdom, right? Or by uh, immigration and being, you know, uh, legally brought in. Okay. To, to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you have to experience a new birth, a spiritual birth. And then the, the mission of earthly kingdoms is order and justice And protection, as we'll see as we go through Romans 13. Whereas the goal of the kingdom of Christ is salvation of souls and growth in godliness. So two very different origins, two very different natures, two very different missions. Uh, You can just see this by contrasting Romans 12 and Romans 13. Here in Romans 13, we see that governing authorities are to rule over others. They're to bear the sword. They're to avenge wrongdoing. And that's really interesting because Paul just told us in Romans 12, don't try and rule over each other, but be humble. Outdo one another in showing honor. He told us that we are not to bear the sword to one, towards one another. We're to strive for peace. He told us you're never to take vengeance on yourself, for yourself. 
In other words, Paul has one message for the church in Romans 12. Be humble. Don't rule over each other. Don't use the sword. Seek for peace. Don't avenge yourself. And then he turns right around into civil government. He says, you have an obligation to rule over others. You have an obligation to bear the sword. You have an obligation to be the one that takes vengeance on wrongdoing. So we see two very different commands, set of commands given to these two different kingdoms. And as we talked about when we were in Romans 12 a little bit, um, suppose you are a judge and you're a Christian judge, right? In your regular everyday life as a Christian, you're to be humble. You're not to rule over others. You're to seek for peace. You're not to take vengeance. When you're sitting in your courtroom fulfilling your your office on behalf of the state, you rule over others. You make judgments. You make decisions that affect people's lives that they must submit to. You're going to be the one who bears the sword, who even perhaps gives the death penalty or so forth, right? Uh, Gives out verdicts and, and, and penalties for crimes, all in your role as a earthly judge on behalf of the state. So do you see the difference between how these two kingdoms look, how these two types of societies, states look? So these kingdoms are different in their origin, different in their nature, different in their mission. Uh, Fourth, these kingdoms are different in their duration, different in their duration. Every earthly kingdom is going to pass away. Every earthly kingdom is temporary Whereas the kingdom of Christ is forever. Um, The kingdoms of this world are part of the workshop in which Jesus is building his church. Once his church is finished, the workshop will not be needed any longer. Only the rule of Christ is going to last forever. Christ will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth, and he will rule there. No other earthly power, earthly kingdom will last forever. Uh, Daniel 4.34, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Okay, so let's, let's just put all this together then. If church and state have different origins, different natures, different missions, different durations. How should these two kingdoms relate to one another? And I think the best and most logical answer is this. They should respect each other's differing purposes. They should respect each other's differing roles. And the state should not try and take over the church's mission. And the church should not try and take over the mission that God has given to the state. They have God-given roles to play. They have each their own calling. Uh, It's the same thing when we talk about gender roles in marriage, right? And we say, yes, God created men and women equal, both in the image of God. Right? But just because men and women have equal dignity don't mean that that, that men are to take on the, the special roles that God has given to women. Or that women are to take on the special roles that God has given to men, right? That they each have their their roles in which they are to fulfill for the glory of God. A a, a Christian uh, senator 
who does his job well and seeks to fulfill these purposes in his office as senator is glorifying God. Right? And then he may also be glorifying God as a Christian seeking to spread the gospel. But he doesn't use his senate office to spread the gospel. And he doesn't go to church and try and get everybody to support his policy for the senate. See? Two differing roles, two differing callings. All right, so let me kind of flesh that out now very practically with six exhortations. And I want to bring this kind of to bear on on our lives. And then I'll give you a chance to ask questions. Uh, Number one, beware looking to the American government to give Christianity any form of special treatment. Uh, Sometimes we're tempted to do this. Because we know that Christianity is true. And we want more and more people to be saved. We want to see Christianity grow. We want to see Christianity flourish. And so sometimes we think, well, if the government will give our religion special treatment, it will serve the cause of Christ. But in reality, every time we give the government power to favor a religion, we're also giving the government power to one day favor a different religion. Or to one day favor atheism, which, which is itself a religion, even though you would think it's not. If you say that it's right today for city and state governments to restrict Muslims from building mosques, then it means that years down the road, you're also saying they have the authority to restrict Christians from building churches. Um, it is dangerous to look to the state to give Christianity a leg up. Especially if you read Revelation and you see that in these last days, national powers are going to do terrible things to the people of God. The more power we give to civil governments to do anything on behalf of religion, the more power that will be used perhaps against God's people in a future day. The fact is, government power and government persuasion is not the answer to bringing more people to Jesus. Uh, One of the first English Baptists, Leonard Busher, said it this way in 1614. He said, no king or bishop is able to command faith. It is the gift of God who works in us both to do the will and the deed of his own good pleasure. In other words, a king can't make people Christian. And you know that kind of thing has happened in the past. Constantine becomes emperor of Rome. He declares, I'm a Christian. Suddenly, there were mass conversions all over the Roman Empire. It was not a revival. It was not a Holy Spirit awakening. It was, oh, I want to be in the good graces of the emperor. And it was probably one of the worst things that could have happened to Christianity at that time. Uh, Kings or bishops cannot command faith. It is the gift of God. John Leland, 1791, said this, still true. Every man must give an account of himself to God. Therefore, every man ought to be at liberty to serve God in the way that he can best reconcile to his conscience. If government can answer for individuals on the day of judgment, then let me be controlled by it in religious matters. Otherwise, let men be free. It's not the government that's going to stand before God on my behalf on the last day. I'm going to stand on my behalf on the last day. And therefore, as John Leland says, government should not seek to to rule over my conscience, what I believe and how I serve God. 
Number two, beware the kind of syncretism that mixes national patriotism with allegiance to Christ. So I'll say that again. Beware the kind of syncretism, bringing stuff together, that mixes patriotism with allegiance to Christ. So let me be clear. I think there's a kind of patriotism that is godly and right. There is a kind of patriotism that is rooted in love for your homeland, rooted in a desire to see your homeland flourish, and I think that's a good and right thing. I almost think shame on you if you don't have it. Almost. But as soon as we start mixing any earthly nation with the kingdom of Christ as if they are somehow one, we've made a grave mistake. There are certain images that I always get a little worked up every time I see them. Like there's this very famous design of an American flag draped on the cross at Calvary. I don't like that at all. I don't like it at all. It's, it's kingdom confusion. Here's the American flag, which, by the way, stands for a nation that is constantly changing. America was once a nation who fulfilled her God-given callings fairly well. She upheld order and justice and gave liberty to Christ's church. And to a decent extent, she is still doing that, though I think she's beginning to lose her step. But one day, that same American flag may stand for a nation that, that puts people of the cross into prison or persecutes Christians, as she has already been guilty of persecuting other religious peoples in the past. Jesus is not an American. Jesus never was an American. He is not an American now. He never will be an American. We are called to be like Abraham who longed for a better country. If we ever get so satisfied here and so comfortable here in America that we're no longer longing for the better country to come, we have made our nation into an idol. Jesus said to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand if it's causing you to sin. If your love for America is tempting you to care little about the kingdom of Christ, you probably need to go buy some plane tickets and get out of this country. Don't lose the things that are eternal for the things that are passing. There are many other nations in this world where God is also at work, where God is building His church. He can use you there as well as He can use you here, perhaps more over there than here. So beware the kind of idolatry, the kind of syncretism that mixes these two kingdoms together and blurs the lines. Number three. Pray for religious liberty. Pray for those in civil power that they would indeed respect the difference when it comes to the nature and the mission of the church. Remember again, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. 
Do you want to do what is good and pleasing in the sight of God your Savior? If you want to do what is good and pleasing in the sight of God your Savior, you've just been told what it was. Make this a priority. Do this first of all. Pray for your civil leaders for the church's sake. Number four. Give thanks to God for the gifts that he has given us in this nation. Uh, James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Do we ever take for granted our freedom to worship like this? Uh, do we ever forget how many of our brothers and sisters in Christ live in nations where the governments are opposing the church, oppressing the church, not respecting the church, not saying we have two different roles, let's let each... No, no, they're actually seeking to, to prevent the Christians from being and doing what God has called them to be and to do. As I was putting together this message, I pulled up persecution.org. On my laptop, um, that's the website of International Christian Concern. And the main headline was, Exponential Increase in Attacks Against Christians in Telangana, India. And I'm just going to read you some of the article. It said, The southern Indian state of Telangana is no exception to the growing religious intolerance sweeping India. The brutality of Hindu religious groups has led to the hospitalization, injury, and displacement of numerous Christians, including pastors Ramesh and Babu. Hindu radicals attacked Pastor Ramesh, forcing him and his family to flee. Prior to this attack, 30-year-old Pastor Ramesh visited his village's revenue office several times to obtain permission to build a church despite numerous threats from Hindu groups. After pastoring his local church for 12 years, Pastor Ramesh rented church space, could not hold all of the church's new members. Therefore, the church purchased land, and the church was ready to build. They simply needed permission from local authorities, but they could not get it. Instead, Pastor Ramesh told International Christian Concern, quote, they dragged me out of the revenue office. Around seven people, led by Mr. Narsimulu, forcibly took me to a deserted place near the revenue office, and they beat me blue and black. It looked like the attack was pre-planned, as they had brought with them wooden sticks and iron wires to attack me. I sustained bruises all over my body, and especially on my back. The Hindu radicals wanted to ensure that this group of Christians would never get their church built. After more than an hour of beatings, the radicals dragged Pastor Ramesh to the registration office where they forcibly transferred the land that had been bought by the church to Mr. Narsimulu, who paid 50% less than the value of the land to the church. After the attack, Pastor Ramesh said, it was like a life and death situation for my family. My wife and kids are so scared and depressed over the developments. My youngest daughter is three months old. The eldest is five years. For a moment, I did not know what to do, so I fled from the village, literally hiding for my life. 
Similarly, Pastor Ravi Babu narrowly escaped a Hindu radical attack. Pastor Ravi told ICC, A mob of 15 Hindu radicals followed me when I was returning from a nearby village. After visiting a few Christian families in that village, sensing possible trouble by the mob, I took a different route to escape the mob's attempt to attack me. Later, the same group went and assaulted another Christian family. A Christian activist spoke with condition of anonymity. He said, there has been a sudden escalation of the attacks against Christians in the state of Telangana. These attacks have led to grave concern for Christian minorities in the state. The government of Telangana should ensure the safety of all, irrespective of any religious affiliation. And it is the fundamental right of every citizen of this nation of India. Did you hear what that person was saying? Because this is what I agree with. The government of Telangana should ensure the safety of all, irrespective of any religious affiliation. They should, though that's not what's happening. All around the world, there are nations that are not providing for the safety and freedom of religious peoples. And yet, here we are this evening. And I wonder whether you are planning to take an alternate route home tonight to avoid being beaten by a mob. Are you afraid that some license or certification that you may need is going to be denied to you because of your faith in Jesus? Are there stripes, are there bruises on your body because of your faith? Uh, If your answer to that is no, that you feel safe and secure, then let us thank God for the freedoms that we have in this nation. Um, Don't ever mix America with the kingdom of Christ. But also, don't ever take for granted how unique our nation has been and its influence has been in spreading religious liberty. It is right to thank God for what we have, even as we pray that he will sustain it for many, many years to come. And even as we pray for our brothers and sisters under other kinds of governments where they find themselves not having that freedom. Number five. Don't think that the separation of church and state means the separation of morality and state. Because people make that mistake a lot. Um, They think that the separation of church and state means that the government can take no positions on issues of morality. Who is the government to say whether abortion is right or wrong? That's a religious issue. Therefore, the government should just let abortion be legal and let every person make their own choice. Or, these folks might say, who is the government to say whether gay marriage is right or wrong? That's a religious issue. People believe different things. Therefore, don't get involved. Don't don't blur the lines. If the civil government is going to to stay away from the church, they better not make any pronouncements on something like gay marriage. Do you see what's happening in that kind of argument? Folks are assuming that the separation of church and state means that the state should not make moral pronouncements. And yet, that is ludicrous. Ludicrous. Because the state has to make moral pronouncements. In fact, 
There's no way around it. That's how laws work. Every law says this is how things are to be and this is not how things are going to be. Or there will be consequences. Uh, The state has to declare certain actions to be right and certain actions to be wrong. That's what it means to be a government. Murder is a crime in our land. There might be somebody out there who religiously believes that murder should be right. Nevertheless, that does not give them an exemption to start murdering people. All governments have the right, the God-given authority, to make moral pronouncements. It's part of the mission that God gave the state. By the way, all of this is introduction to the seven verses. We're actually going to get into the seven verses. But but just to see it now, we'll talk about it later. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He, the governor, the government, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. If governing authorities are to bear the sword against those who do wrong and are to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, there has to be some standard of what is truly wrong. And you can't have a wrong without a right. Governments have to be about the business of declaring right and wrong. When they do so, they are not stepping into the church's mission. They're doing exactly what God gave the the state the responsibility to do. Sometimes you will hear people say, governments shouldn't legislate morality. You ever heard people say that? Governments should not, they should stay out of the business of legislating morality. Friends, governments have to legislate morality. All of life is inherently moral. All of life is lived before the eyes of God. All of life will be judged on the last day. Anytime a government makes any law or any regulation, they are laying down a moral principle because they are laying down something that has to do with life that will be judged by God on the last day. They are telling you something that you should or should not do. And that's what governments are supposed to do. Now, that's a heavy responsibility. To declare to people in a society what is right and what is wrong. That is a heavy responsibility. There are limits to how far government should go. Absolutely. But also, we ought, this, this is all the more reason why we ought to pray for our civil leaders. I would not want to be a local, state, or national leader. I, I think politics and being a civil servant is one of the hardest jobs a person can have if you're going to try and do it right if you're going to try and do it with integrity, if you're going to try and honor the role that God has given the state, it is a very, very difficult thing to do. I think this passage gives our political leaders a lot of help, and we'll see that later. But all the more reason for us to pray for our leaders. Sixth exhortation, based on the separation of church and state. Don't think that the separation of church and state means that the two should not speak to each other. Don't think that the separation of church and state means that the two should not speak to each other. They must speak to each other. (laughs) 
They should remain engaged in their separate callings, their separate responsibilities, their separate roles, but they must communicate. The church is to speak to society about what good government looks like. The church is to speak to society about what true morality looks like. The church is to speak to society about what leading with integrity looks like. In all of those issues and more, governing authorities would do well to listen to the church. The church should not try and force those things on the government. But the church should speak with a divine authority the truths of God that governing authorities need to hear. And similarly, the church needs to listen to civil authorities. Uh, when a civil authority tells us that in order to uphold justice or in order to uphold order, the church needs to do X, as long as doing that doesn't violate King Jesus' laws for us, we ought to do X. Right? It can be frustrating. Um, I remember talking with uh, Pastor Dan over at Servant's Heart when they were building their building. And it was so hard because the city of Rocky Mount had so many regulations for them to follow, right? Uh, in order to, to honor civil authorities, they had to, what, what one thing they wanted to do was put up a basketball goal. They wanted to put that up so that they could have a way of doing outreach to their community and maybe a basketball goal would attract some, some, some students and some kids and some others from the area and the city of Rocky Mount said, no, you cannot put up the basketball goal unless you basically pour a complete uh, sidewalk all the way around the entire, the entire property that's required by the city. It was going to cost them way more money, but they had to do it. Every time they thought they were ready to, to pass inspection and to get into the church, the inspector would come. There was yet some other regulations, something else that had to be done, some more money that had to be spent in order to meet those regulations. It is not always easy, but the Church of Christ ought to listen to civil authorities. And when civil authorities speak and it's not going to cause us to disobey King Jesus, we should listen. Which is why verse 1 starts the way it does. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And how many times, fellow deacons in here, have we talked about asbestos? And city regulations and state regulations about asbestos. And how we would like to ignore those regulations. It would sure save this church a whole lot of money if we could ignore those regulations. But... I don't think with integrity we can ignore those regulations. <laughs> so that's where we are. Uh, let me also be clear about this. The separation of church and state does not mean that you should neglect your civic responsibility. In our particular nation, you are a part of the government. That is, you hold leaders accountable and bring people in and out of office through voting. It is right to bring your Christian worldview and it is right to bring your morality into the ballot box. Okay? You, you don't leave your Christian faith outside the building when you go in and vote. We just said that earthly kingdoms should listen to what the church has to tell them about true morality. Well, one way we get to speak 
to this earthly government that we live in is by voting in people who understand leadership with integrity, uh, what true morality looks like, what is the proper role of government. So it is, it, is, it is absolutely right to keep that worldview in mind as you go and vote during election time. As you vote for a fallen human candidate... Remember that you do have a king who is the king of kings, and he is the very definition of good leadership. Um, remember, at the end of the day, the world we live in is not a democracy and not a republic. That we could talk about some representative government going on. Uh, at the end of the day, we live in a dictatorship, but a very holy and good and right dictatorship. Because the Lord Jesus Christ reigns over all, and yet he reigns in goodness and wisdom and kindness. And one day, he will rule with all his fullness, with all evil, having been ridded of this world. And that will be true society. And on that day, these two, no longer separate roles, these two will be one in the new heavens and the new earth. But let's not try and be in heaven when we're not yet in heaven. While we're in this world, the church, separate from the state. Now, seriously, all of that is just to prepare you to go into verses 1 through 7 with the right understanding, what I think is the right understanding of state and government um, and church. But do, do you have any questions uh, tonight over, over what we've talked about? Uh-huh. Are you saying that maybe more Christians ought to run for office? Is that what you're saying? I'm not saying that, but I have heard people say that. Yeah. So, so I am, uh, so, so two different things there. Let me, let me address the second one first. Uh, I actually do think that we need more Christians running for office. Uh, I, I do think we, we need more people who have a strong sense of what is the proper role of government. What does true morality look like? What does integrity and leadership look like? I think we need more of those kinds of people running. Um, so so I, I would agree with, with that. Now, of course, uh, in our kind of uh, democratic republic... Um, often who gets elected is going to be a reflection of what's happening in the culture overall. So you can have a lot of Christians run and maybe not a lot of Christians get elected, right? Depending on, that's very different, for example, in Eastern North Carolina than it is in California, right? You may have a lot of, um, there are a lot of conservative evangelical Christians in California. It just happens that there's a whole lot more, right, who are very uh, liberal, uh, unbelieving, and so there, there may be lots of, of Christian evangelicals running for office there, but they just don't get elected. Um, but I, it does, it is concerning, uh, and, and maybe y'all saw this last political season, uh, there were several places on the ballot where certain people were running completely unopposed. And sometimes there were people that I thought, 
we should really oppose. <laughs> you know, there, there should be someone running. Even if you don't think your chances are good, somebody who holds a Christian worldview, someone who holds these kinds of things that we're talking about, uh, you know, ought to be at least tr- attempting uh, by God's grace to, to be a voice uh, for truth there. So I do think Christians ought to run for office. I don't think churches ought to endorse candidates. Uh, that's, and that's, we'll get into more of that later, but, uh, but that's one thing. The other thing you said is more difficult. Um, and, and I remember uh, when I was in high school, um, a big deal was made about how prayer was taken out of schools in 1962, 63, something like that, um, that, that, that it was officially done. And then, of course, many schools kept doing it anyway for a long time after that until uh, more and more people uh, raised lawsuits. And, and it may still be done occasionally. Uh, in, in more rural, rural school districts. The reality is, if you say that government uh, should mandate Christian prayer in public school, I'm absolutely opposed to that. Because if they can mandate Christian prayer in public school, they can mandate any other kind of prayer in public school. We wouldn't want our children going to public school and being mandated to, to, to pray to, to Allah or anybody else. Right? Um, that's very different than, for example, schools giving your children an opportunity to pray. Uh, the reality is, uh, in my personal opinion, prayer is still in schools as long as there are Christian students in schools. As long as there are students who, who have a heart to pray, that's not something the government can take away. Um, because prayer isn't something that you can keep kids from doing uh, if, they, if they long to pray. So, so I'm not as riled up about that as I used to be. And I'm more cautious about giving civil authority that kind of power. Because I, I'm fearful of how it would be used in the future uh, and how I expect it will be used in the future based on uh, the book of Revelation. Does that help, Bill? Other questions, thoughts? As soon as we give one teacher the authority to try and, you know, pressure students into one, you have to say that the other teachers have the authority to do the opposite. And uh, that's, that's very dangerous, I think. Good. Any others? Yes, that's a great question. That's right. So, so, so one, of the, one of the greatest blessings is common grace. And part of that common grace 
is God has woven into the fabric of this world and into human consciences and into human hearts, Romans chapter 2, um, the knowledge of his moral law, I think, is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Um, do do y'all hear all the talk about rights these days? Rights, rights, rights. You have the right to do this. You have the right. And you have to ask yourself, where do those rights come from? If you say the government is the one that declares those rights, that's scary. Because any government that, has the, is, is the, that is the one declaring those rights is the one that can take away those rights. This country was founded on the idea of natural rights. Going all the way back to John Locke, John Locke and before him. Natural rights is the idea that there are some rights that God has given to all people. But you have to ask, how do we know what those are? And how do you figure out what those are? I actually think if you look at the Ten Commandments, you find the roots of every true natural right. Why do you have the right to live? God said, you shall not murder. And he didn't just write that on tablets of stone. It's written in the heart of every human being. Every tribal aborigine in the Amazonian rainforest knows it is wrong for me to murder my neighbor. Okay? Every one of them knows that. Where do you get the right to property? You shall not steal. Right? And everybody knows that. This is, this is you know, my pineapple and you stole it from me. Right? You, you know when it's been taken. Right? Everybody knows that. that. Right? So this is, this is where I think governments find the answer. It's in these natural rights that people already, already know. And I think if you look at the Ten Commandments, each one of them actually ends up becoming a right that governments then can, can use uh, in, in doing this. And, of course, if governments don't want to look at the Ten Commandments, it's okay because by common grace, it's actually already written into their hearts and into their minds. No government is perfect. No government does this even well. Um, uh, but that's, that's where I think it's, it's rooted uh, in that. And then I do believe that the church, you know, as far as gospel light has come into a nation, we ought to proclaim as loudly as we can true morality. And we ought to pray that kings and queens and rulers and senators and representatives and presidents will listen uh, to, that, to that light. So. Any other thoughts or questions? Because we can actually talk a lot about that rights thing. But we may do that later.